0: Thanks, Ken. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. Thank you to those who are helping teach them today. This morning, uh, we are starting a a new series that will last a couple of weeks called Preparing for Christmas. We're going to be kind of all over the Bible, but our main passage will be Matthew 1. So if you brought a Bible or you're opening an app, you can go ahead and turn there. It will be in Matthew 1. You're using a Bible from the chairs. Uh, we are in page 557. Should be a Bible around you that looks like this. If you don't have one, please feel free to take that um, and keep it. We are in 557. My parents are here today. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. They are, uh, my dad's in the process of uh, retiring after 4,900, oh, 42 years of uh, pastoring most everything I learned, I learned from you. Thank you. So if you have a problem with me, take it up with him, all right? Um, We're all right smack in the middle of all the busy preparations for Christmas, So Buying gifts, making travel plans, planning meals, choosing which family we hope come this year, praying which ones we hope don't, all of those things we are right smack in the middle of. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider ways in which the Bible itself prepares us for Christmas. Did you know the Bible does that? In fact... The first, if you were to hold up one of these Bibles from the chairs and mark where the New Testament starts, so the point at which Jesus entered history, became a baby, lived the rest of his life, that much is prior to. So roughly the first two-thirds of your Bible is designed to help prepare you for Christmas. And so in this series, we're going to do something very different than what we normally do. We just finished Philippians. Our typical uh, mode of thought is to just start in a book in the Bible and just work our way through thought by thought by thought by thought. So we spent all fall together in Philippians. Sometimes it's very helpful if we zoom out and try to take a larger view of what the whole Bible says. So that's what we're going to do starting today. And in this new series of sermons, we're going to look at how the Old Testament prepared us for the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We'll look specifically at three ideas, three truths from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament. Namely, starting today, we'll look at how Jesus is incarnate. So that means that Jesus is God who became man. Next week, O'Brien is going to help us see that Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed the Father on our behalf. And then finally, on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about how Jesus is our intermediary, meaning that he's the one who acted on our behalf to save us. So that's where we're headed. Um, It's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Today, we just want to talk about this whole issue of preparation and then briefly look at the shocking truth of the Incarnation. Now, to be really blunt, this is going to be hard to receive. This is not an easy way to approach the Bible. So let's see if we can use an analogy to get us there. I want to invite you over the next several weeks to climb a mountain with us. You don't have to. That sounded like a no. You can leave if you'd like. But some of us in the room have climbed uh, some mountains. Climbing is difficult. Climbing is often a large, long, arduous journey. The longer you go, of course, the more tired you get. The higher you go, the more difficult it is to breathe. Every step becomes challenging. And at least for every hike I've been on, the trail is longer than I expected, But eventually you make it to the top, and the view from the summit is amazing. It makes every step of that journey worth it, right? Would you go on a hike with me today? Can we spend about 30 minutes taking step after step after step after step that will be increasingly difficult as we move around and move along, but at the top? The journey will be worth it. About 30 minutes from now, we'll summit the very heights of what the Bible tells us about the incarnation, and we'll gaze together over the biblical landscape that describes for us why it matters so much that God became a man. So let's go on a hike together. To understand how the Bible prepares us for Christmas, we've gotta first understand what the Bible is. Now, a lot of us are familiar with this, but we're um, an unusual church in that there's lots of people here who are still exploring Christianity. And so, maybe some of us are new to the Bible. The Bible is not like any other book. It's not a single book by a sole human author. It's not like any other book that you would pick up and read. It's a divine collection of 66 different books. So in one way, we could say that the Bible is much more like a library than it is what we think of as a traditional book. It's a library from God. God spoke his word through human beings who recorded exactly what God wanted us to hear and did that over a long stretch of time. So in the Bible, we have an accurate, trustworthy, authoritative message from the Creator and King of the universe. Are you with me so far? All right. Now, most books we read, how do you read them? You start in the beginning, and you read it through. A lot of you will have tried to read the Bible and you tried to read it that way, and you didn't make it very far. Why? Well, some theologians would tell us because that's not the best way to read the Bible. That That's actually a very difficult way to read the Bible. So in case you don't believe me, here's a quote. He says, that Graham Goldsworthy, which, by the way, that name is fantastic. Uh, if you want to believe a theologian, he's got to have a cool name, and this guy has a cool name. Here's what he says. In doing biblical theology as Christians, we do not start at Genesis 1 and work our way forward until we discover where it is all leading. Rather, we come first to Christ. And he directs us to study the Old Testament, so that first two-thirds. He directs us To study the Old Testament in light of the gospel. The Gospel will interpret the Old Testament by showing us its goal and meaning. The Old Testament will increase our understanding of the Gospel by showing us what Christ fulfills. In other words, Goldsworthy says, start in the New Testament, and only then will you be able to fully understand and appreciate what the Old Testament was always about. So those first 39 books. Their designed, intended, predominant message is to point forward to Christ. So to say it even more directly, if you take one of these Bibles home today, Graham's argument is start on page 557, read through the next 165 pages, and then go back and read the first 556 pages. Now, why in the world would he say that? That's strange. I'll never forget where I was reading his book when I read that. It wrecked me. I'd never heard anybody say that in that way before. Why would he say that? Well, it's because Jesus himself believed that the Old Testament was about him. Luke 24, 25 says this. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus said to his followers after his resurrection, Do you want to understand what in the world's going on? Then let's go back and look. Isn't that interesting? In this short series called Preparing for Christmas, we're going to start with Christ, start with the gospel, and we're going to reach back into the first 39 books and show in just three small ways the way those books pointed forward to Christ. My task for today is to hold up how the Old Testament, that first two-thirds, says that Jesus is God and that Jesus came for us. The New Testament, so I'm going to keep doing this over and over and over because uh, even if you've been a believer a long, long time, I'm not sure this is completely clear to all of us. Starting in Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are four biographies written about the time of Christ, the life of Christ while he was on earth. Those books are then explained and fleshed out through the rest of the Bible. And those together are called the New Testament. These books claim that Jesus is God incarnate. They claim that Jesus is the eternal God who at a specific moment in time entered the human race. Now, the New Testament claims that the Old Testament always told us that that's what was going to happen. Now, we've just turned our first leg on the hike. The the trees are getting more dense. We've stopped for a water break, so take a deep breath, all right? Don't blow on the person next to you. You might have bad breath. So first, first for this week, Jesus as a human being foretold in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. And I just want to show you that from three specific instances where we see it. We're going to get to Matthew, but I don't want you to feel like you got to jump all over the Bible and you miss what we're trying to say. So stay there. We'll get there in a moment. The first way the Old Testament tells us it foretold, it prophesied that Jesus would come as a human being as it tells us that he was to be conceived and born of a virgin, that he would be conceived and born of a virgin. We've sung about that multiple times today. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah is a prophet, a book in the Old Testament, who foretold us that God would send a billboard, if you will, a big sign that he was doing something incredibly unique and special. That sign would be that a virgin would become pregnant with a child. Now, I didn't do very well in school, but even I know that's not how that normally works. This is unusual. This is out of the ordinary. A virgin would become pregnant in a very unique way, unlike anything that's ever happened before or will ever happen again. And at least one of the names of this baby would be Emmanuel. We've also sung about that today. The name Emmanuel means God with us. Now, keep in mind this was written around seven BCE, so before Christ, before the common era, Isaiah said, somebody's going to come a long, long time from now, and he's going to be conceived by a virgin. So Matthew 1, 20 is where your Bibles are open to. We've just fast-forwarded 700, almost 800 years. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the New Testament tells us that what the Old Testament predicted, foretold, would happen came true in Christ. That 700 years after Isaiah said it, that Jesus came conceived and born to the virgin Mary. What difference does that make? We'll get there, but we gotta keep climbing a little bit higher. But just for a pause, let's take a break. Jesus had flesh and bones. He still does. Jesus entered the world. He joined us in all our joys and our sorrows. He's the one Isaiah prophesied would come. Now second, another thing we find To be true is that Jesus was to be of the seed of Abraham. Jesus was to be of the seed of Abraham. So let's go back not just to Isaiah, but even earlier, to the very first book in the Bible. Somewhere around the world, somewhere around the time 2000 BCE, this command and promise was given to a guy named Abraham, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Same promise is... Repeated later in Genesis chapter 22, I will surely bless you, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is in the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. This, you may know, is the central promise given in the entire Bible. So if you have a piece of thread, Lisa, hold us up what you got. Lisa is always, what is this called? No, no, yarn, crochet, crochet. thank you, Jill. Um, Lisa crochets so she can stay awake during the sermon. (laughs) If you take a piece of Lisa's yarn and you pull it all the way through, it's connected the whole way through, right? Am I understanding this correctly? All right. If you pull a promise in Genesis 12 and you pull it through the entire Bible, the thread that binds the Bible together is the promise given to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. The Bible feels many times confusing, complex, um, difficult. To get through, doesn't it? Some of you are m- much more wise and holy and smart than me. I find it sometimes to be frustrating to try and understand what in the world is going on in the Bible. The Bible is like a clothesline, it is one continual story that is told through a whole bunch of little stories, a whole bunch of clips that hang the clothes on the clothesline. And so we're trying to show today that the New Testament helps us understand what was happening in the Old Testament. Part of what was happening in the Old Testament is this person, Jesus, would come and he would be the fulfillment of the promise given to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. We know that the New Testament tells us that God's promise of blessing Abraham was a foretelling ultimately that some people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the entire world would come to believe in the gospel. And so for today, in this time period of God's working of his plan, God is rescuing people and gathering them into churches. And look around. I don't know how many ethnicities are represented in our church family, but there's a bunch. We are a diverse people. We are a fulfillment of Genesis 12 because Jesus is the one who has saved us and rescued us and bound us together. Amen? Now listen to how the New Testament begins. You're already there in Matthew. Just look at the first verse. Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ whereby most of us then skip all the way down to the good stuff. But you're missing the explosive moment when Matthew says, everything from Genesis to Malachi is all bound up in Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is Emmanuel. He's born to a virgin. He's of the lineage Of Abraham, So he's the promised one who was given to bless the people of God of every tribe, tongue, and nation. All that's bound up in just a couple of words. Now one more, and then I want to start working this out for us in our experience. Third, we just read, son of David. What is that? Well, we're told that he's born as an heir to King David's throne. That's given to us in much more detail back in Isaiah. This will be on the screens. Isaiah 9. Verse six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, To establish it and to uphold it with justice, righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, 700 roughly BCE. And then we just read in Matthew 1. Jesus was of the son of David. It's even clearer in Luke. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Wow! Wow! Now, if you're here today and you don't believe in Christ, we're thrilled that you're here. One question I would ask you is how do you explain that? Again, not one book written by one person. Stretched out over roughly 1,500 years of authorship and telling us in incredibly precise detail about this person who would come. And then how do you explain that there's people gathered all over the place? Let's just take the valley. All over the valley this morning in groups like this who say, I believe that. Where have we come from? Where do we go? Where do we come from? Cutting-eyed Joe. It just popped in my head. It's tense in here today. Lighten up. I know the climb is hard, but come with me. How do you explain that? you you got to do something with it. Now, let's take all of that that we've just said and boil it down in two simple questions. Number one, who is Jesus? In light of what we've just read. And number two, why does he matter? Who is Jesus and why does he matter? First, who is Jesus? Friends, this is the question of all questions. This is the one. And even within the Bible itself, we find people asking this question. A whole bunch of times, actually. In those biographies we talked about a few minutes ago, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find this question over and over and over. Let me give you a few examples. There's one time Jesus is having a meal with a bunch of grumpy religious people. Maybe you know some of them. And a woman comes in who's known in the town to be a prostitute. And she takes some of the tool of her trade, some perfume, and she pours it on his feet and she wipes them with her tears and her hair. And the stuffy religious people say, he's not a prophet because a prophet would never let a woman like that, a hooker, wash his feet. And Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, your sins are forgiven. And they respond, who is this that thinks he can forgive sin? Who is Jesus? There's another time when Jesus is teaching, and there's a a crippled man there. And they lower him down through the roof because, again, the religious people are in the way. They won't let him in. And Jesus looks at this man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And he says, get up and walk. And the dude jumps up, grabs his mat, and runs out. Can you imagine seeing that? the stuffy people say who is this who claims to forgive sin there's another time Jesus is in a boat and everybody else in the boat is afraid they think they're going to die because the storm blows in the waves are crashing over the sides of the boat it's filling with water they wake Jesus up Jesus Jesus don't you care we're going to die. Jesus looks at the storm and he says, Stop it. And the storm's gone. And they say, Who is this? Who is Jesus? That even the storms obey him. One more. Jesus gets on a donkey and he, he rides into Jerusalem. And the people there who know him put down their coats and branches and they're yelling, they're shouting. And the whole town, Jerusalem, you can still go there today and see exactly where this happens. The whole town is saying, who, who is this? The Bible is not a concocted story of people who always understood what's going on, who always got that in this first two-thirds, Jesus would come. And then in these Gospels, the people who are closest to him are often asking, who is this? That may be the single most important question you've never asked. Who is Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus is God incarnate. That Jesus is the eternal God who in the first century left heaven, came to earth. His Father is God the Father. He came as God the Son, was born to Mary and adopted by Joseph. Now, if you have a hard time believing that God became a man, I would say me too. And I would say the people in the Bible itself had severe struggle coming to the point of believing that. It's rather ridiculous, but it's true. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were as surprised as you even though they knew the Old Testament way better than any of us do. Jesus is utterly unique. He's fully God and fully man at the same time. That's what in the fourth century the apostles, the the, uh, leaders worked out in that apostles' creed because that's what the apostles taught. This is what theologians call the incarnation, God becoming a human being. Now that, of course, is the greatest miracle that has ever happened. Sure, maybe closely followed by the Cubs winning the World Series this year, but Jesus becoming a man. It's the most astonishing thing that has ever taken place. The one who spoke the world into existence chose to enter into He fully immersed himself into life as a human being. He faced the same kind of trials and hardships that you do. And yet he didn't forfeit being God. Fully God, fully man. Again, if that's hard to get your brain around, then you're being honest. But that is what the scriptures tell us. How exactly can that work? I don't know. But people have been believing it for a long, 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 long time. Now look again at Matthew's account. And I want to try to point out a few things. Let's start in verse 18 this time. Matthew 1, 18. We're nearing the summit. Matthew 1, 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Where did Christmas come from? How did all this stuff get started? Here's how. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, essentially that means a beefed up engagement. Typically lasted a year, and it was designed to show, are these people going to be sexually faithful? It was a test to see specifically, will this woman be faithful to this man? So they're engaged for a year. And in that engagement (laughs) is when this happens. If you don't find humor in this, you're not understanding the story. So in other words, while Mary is supposed to be proving that she will be sexually faithful by not sleeping with Joseph or anybody else, It's in that moment God comes and does something absolutely absurd and causes her to be impregnated from the Holy Spirit. Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. That's code for before they had sex. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, so serious was this point of engagement that they're already referred to as husband and wife. So, Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What does that mean? That means Joseph looks at the person he's engaged to and says, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't do that. That means someone else did. That means she failed and I'm done with her but I love her and I don't want to bring her into the town square and tell everybody what she did. So I'm going to quietly set her aside and I'm going to go start a new life. Understandable? Yes. No one had ever heard of this person's going to come. The one we've read about forever in the Old Testament is going to come to Mary a poor woman who's proving her faithfulness. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, why that detail? Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will, Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, that means look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph is told, give this child the name Jesus. The name Jesus means God Saves. Now, naming in the ancient world wasn't based on the way we name today. Let's be honest, those of you in the room with kids. The majority of us name our kids because we like the way the name sounds. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the times in the Bible, uh, you thought through it a little deeper than that. Your name for your child was all bound up with your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations for them. And so Jesus being named Jesus, Joseph being told named to him Jesus, and then Joseph doing so shows that Joseph took the angel at his word and that he believed that bound up in this child's future is the very rescue Of the world. You still with me? This is hard work. This is harder than a single paragraph in Philippians. But why did God oversee Jesus' life in such a way that Joseph would be his adopted father? Why Mary? But in particular, at this moment, we've already addressed that. Why Joseph? Well, because way back in Joseph's ancestral line was King David. And it was the promise given to King David that one would come from him whose reign wouldn't be for 30, 40, 50 years. And it wouldn't be over the little nation of Israel. It'd be forever, over all of God's people. Forever. Forever. And so Joseph is the fulfillment of that promise. And the Old Testament's full of promises like this. Who is Jesus? He's God incarnate, fully God, fully man. Now why does that matter? Why does Jesus matter? Now we're at the summit. A few of you are still alive. The miracle of the Incarnation is that as God, Jesus demands and is worthy of our complete allegiance and our worship, our obedience, our delight. Because He's God. If you are serving anyone or anything else, as supreme in your life, you are serving something that can't possibly give you what you want. Jesus is God. And as God, he is the only one that can fulfill your longings. And so as we look out of the landscape of the Bible, in the horizons of our life, what we see is a God who came. Now, Jesus as a man means that he identifies with and is sympathetic towards our greatest needs. The difference is that when he faced points of need, And there was temptation. He didn't fall to temptation. He stayed true to the Father. He obeyed. And so Jesus as man means he can sympathize with us in every way, tempted with us in every way. But as God, he was without sin. And so we have a God that we come to in prayer who doesn't stand with a ruler waiting to smack you who isn't, as my dad used to tell me, wringing his hands, saying, what am I going to do with Chuck? He surprised me again with this heinous, awful thing he's done. We have a God who already knew and already loves and wants to be your supreme treasure. And yet, who as a man came and died in your place, This is the greatest truth you could possibly hear. Jesus' status as God means that God has entered humanity. Do you see what that means? Friends, it may feel like it today, but life is not a harsh existence under a cruel, disinterested God. Rather, God cares so much that he entered into the brokenness that we caused and felt the full effects of it. So deeply did God desire, brothers and sisters, to be in a right relationship with you, that he took on flesh, and then that flesh was pummeled, pummeled, Not because he deserved it, but because you did, and I did. And he did so with joy. Jesus' status as a man means that he's the sacrificial king ruling on David's throne forever. He lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and he came not to judge, but to receive the judgment If you want to learn more about this, Hebrews is a fantastic book in your Bible to read. That's all that it does is it takes the Old Testament and it goes... So here's just one verse. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise, partook of the same things. In other words, Jesus took on flesh. And through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. What did Jesus come to do? He came to be God with us. Emmanuel, what did Jesus come to do? He came to save Jesus. God saves. What did Jesus come to do? He came to crush death. One great theologian says, the death of death came in the death of Christ. And he crushed the devil. So now, if you're in Christ, none of those things have any authority whatsoever over you. So you can go to the Christmas meal with all the crazies in your house, and you can love them, and you can give to them, and you can not be grumpy. And far more importantly, you've been rescued from hell. Every aspect of Jesus' coming was under the sovereign care and plan of God. And so is every aspect of your life. And Jesus' love is without comparison. God himself came for us. And he came at a great cost. When I asked Jill to marry me some 21 and something years ago, I didn't send somebody else to do it. I went myself. That's what love does. When someone loves someone else and they're saying, I want to sacrifice for you and live the rest of my life with you, you go yourself. In an infinitely greater way. That's what Jesus did. He came for you. So, Christian, you are perfectly, completely loved. If you're not a believer, if you don't know this Jesus yet, the greatest gift you could unwrap this Christmas is the gift of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is offered to you through the gospel. The great news that Jesus came and died and rose again. And he died in your place. And if you believe that message, and if you recognize that you yourself have rejected him, not been living with him on the throne of your life, and if you're willing to simply say in your own words, I believe this message I've heard today. And I want to turn from my sin and turn to Him. Then He'll save you. And you can do that sitting right where you are now. And everything changes then. And if you do that today, we'd love to hear about it. But if you have more questions, we'd also love to hear about that. So talk to the person you came with or meet me out on the patio. Let's pray. God, this was not an easy message. We've covered the span in some ways of the entire biblical story. God, would you, through your spirit, cause your word to break stony, rebellious hearts? Would you convince us of how great our sin is, but how much greater your love and your forgiveness and your salvation is. We pray this in Jesus' name.